Let's see here. Okay, yesterday we kind of opened up the, the topic of worship. Uh, basically, if you flip the page over, we're going to do the back side of this page today, and then we're going to probably take some of those questions that we brainstormed on yesterday. And, um, yeah, I think the passage that we'll look at first is in First Peter chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, please look at First Peter chapter 2. One of my concerns about a lot of worship these days, and we talked a little bit about this yesterday, about distinguishing between the worship of worship and the worship of Christ being captured by his beauty. Um, it, it's, really, it's really important that you understand that the, the point of worship is to give all glory to God um, and particularly to Christ crucified. And... Um, you know, if you think that worship is good and yet Christ and, and Christ crucified is not more magnified, not only in your understanding but in your affections, um, then the point really has been missed. And yet, um, there's a lot of worship, a lot of, a lot of churches I've been at or, you know, ministry groups I've been at where we'll have a season of singing songs or, you know, even a whole worship service, even a sermon. Um, where Christ is not really explicitly manifest, it, where Christ and Him crucified is, I, I don't, I don't taste that, I don't see that, I don't feel that. A um, lot of songs that we sing that we just seem to assume that if we really are passionate about what we're doing, that God is really pleased, or um, if you know, I just want to love you, that that's enough basis for us to stand before God and for God to be pleased with our worship. That's not the case. It's not the case. The Bible um, makes it really clear that the only way that our worship is acceptable to God is not because it's passionate or authentic um, or intellectual or reverent, but because of the blood of Jesus, which cleanses everything. Look at here at First Peter chapter two, in verse five. It says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Simple little verse, but a really important little verse. Um, it, it, it's vital. So you will find, you know, um, when you're thinking about worship, if you're ever in a position of sort of choosing songs for worship or being involved in the planning of a worship service, um, it, it's really important that this is communicated. Um, if you're ever asked to pray at the beginning of a worship service, you should, you should set the tone right and biblically that the reason we can come before God is because of what Jesus has done. It's the only basis uh, by which anything we do is made acceptable. That's, again, what, what's pointed out so well in that hymn, Rock of Ages, could my zeal, no respite, no, even if I could be fired up for Jesus all the time, could my tears forever flow, even if I could weep over my sin the way I should, it still doesn't have any effect uh, on making us acceptable before God. There's nothing that you do that makes you more acceptable to God or less acceptable to God if you're in Christ. And uh, Brian's been talking about that. He's going to talk about it some more tonight. He's going to talk about faith and what is faith about. Um, faith is not a work. Faith is not a work. 
um, we don't wump up sort of the right worship feelings and then trust that God is pleased with what we're doing because of that. God is pleased with what we're doing. He cleanses. This is so important for Christians to know. He cleanses your half-hearted worship. That should actually cause you to worship more truly, right? It doesn't mean that we just don't worry about it and we don't mourn our cold hearts. But you understand the only thing that's going to melt your heart and warm your heart is to be struck again with the amazing grace of the gospel. I have a friend, Scott Rowley, pastor back in, in Nashville you know, for many years. And he had a guy come meet with him a while back who said, okay, you know, I, you know, I'm a Christian, but I just really don't get this idea. I just really like this idea that I have to go out and evangelize. Why do I have to go out and evangelize? And uh, Scott said, you don't have to evangelize for God to love you. God's love for you is not based on you evangelizing anybody. And the guy said, hmm, he left. A few weeks later, Scott was talking to a mutual friend of, of theirs. He said, you know, Scott, what did you say to so-and-so? Ever since he met with you, he just can't, he can't stop, you know, talking about Jesus, telling everybody he knows about Jesus. So Scott called the guy back into his office and said, okay, what got into you? He said, I don't know. I mean, as soon as you told me that I didn't have to evangelize for God to love me, I just had to tell everybody. <laughs> All right. So, you know, what I'm not saying is that you should be content with not evangelizing or be content with um, not, you know, worshiping Jesus from the heart. But understand that you don't have the power to change it. And that's why it's, it's so important that, that we direct ourselves even back to the truth of the gospel. In the Reformed tradition, we talk about the means of grace more than we talk about spiritual disciplines. I don't know if, what background you've come from, but you might have noticed that. These RUF ministers never really talk about spiritual disciplines. When they talk about prayer or reading your Bible, that sort of stuff, they're always talking about the means of grace. What does that mean? The means of grace means that God speaks the truth of the gospel to us through several different things, generally. Through the word of God, um, read, preached, through the sacraments, which we understand to be the gospel in a picture. That the same thing that the Bible is trying to communicate is also what the sacraments are communicating. Uh, and, and just as the, the Holy Spirit creates faith through the hearing of the word by helping us believe what it actually says, so with the sacraments, it is the gospel preached in a picture. And our, and our hope is that God the Spirit would use that to convince us that these things, this, these promises are true. Faith grows by feasting on the promises of God, not by continually telling God what you want to do. Now, it's appropriate to respond to God's promises and say, well, God, if, if you've promised this, and I know your promise is true, and I believe it, though I also at the same time say, help me in my unbelief, then, Lord, I do want to give you everything. But I don't come to God and say, because I give you everything, therefore accept my worship. Lord, I just want to worship you. No, you don't. You come to worship with a divided heart. And your, your only hope is that God makes your worship acceptable through Christ Jesus. You know, it's, it's one thing, see, to understand that Jesus cleanses you from all your sins before you become a Christian. But what about all the sins you commit after being a Christian? It's vital that you understand that everything you do is made acceptable through Christ. He 
cleanses it. He makes up what's lacking in your half-hearted worship. And that should actually draw you to worship and love him more. All right? um, another verse that I think brings this out is, is in Romans 2.4, where it talks about it's the kindness and mercy of God that's designed to lead to repentance. It's not enough for you to be convicted of your sin. It's not enough for you to be convicted of your sin. Um, Calvin taught, and, and all the reformers um, taught, that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. That true repentance is always a collapsing on the mercy and the goodness of God. Because as, as Hebrew says, you're convinced that he will reward those who seek him. He doesn't pay a wage to those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. Um, we have to be convinced that God is a safe place to repent. If all you get is your sin exposed and you don't understand that God is welcoming you back, then when your sin is exposed, it will make you run and hide again in a different way. The only thing that really leads you to repentance, that really leads you to collapse on grace, is for the kindness and mercy of God. And so that's what we want to bring out. We want to understand the kindness and mercy of God in a way that leads us to repentance, in a way that causes us to come back to our senses and repent of thinking that we could please God by what we do. Okay? Um, and I, I really do believe that, you know, it's this truth of the gospel that brings both joy and reverence. A lot of people, I think, get into this debate about, you know, this church over here, the worship is really reverent, but it doesn't seem like it's alive. And this worship over here is really lively, but it doesn't seem to have a sense of reverence. I think understanding the gospel should bring both. You see, understanding that Jesus lived and died in your place should make you humble and it should make you bold. It should make you humble because you realize that I deserve death and hell. I can never flatter myself and say, boy, God's really lucky to have me on his team. Um, I, I think, you know, sometimes I wonder, was Jesus insane to describe the kingdom of God um, as a great party? You ever wonder what to do with those parables where he talks about the gospel, as a, you know, the kingdom is a great party because most Christians I know don't feel like the kingdom is a party. The reason is because we feel like it wouldn't be a party unless we were invited. In other words, we're not, we're not amazed that we get invited to the party. So we just sort of take it as, oh, of course, wouldn't be a party without me. Wouldn't be a kingdom, wouldn't be a, good, a church without me. But the gospel, understanding, looking at the cross and Jesus crucified should always humble us to realize that it took the torturing of the Son of God for you to be reconciled, for you to be welcomed. So don't flatter yourself. You needed more than a helping hand. You needed more than an invitation. You needed more than a second chance to get it right. You needed... Jesus, to live and die in your place. You needed God the Father to take you when you were dead and breathe new life into you. Right? You understand how big the gospel is. If we do, it should always make us humble. It should also make us bold, though. Because Christians should always be those who understand that if Jesus lived and died in my place, I get access. I'm welcomed into the presence of God. I don't have to come, the book of Hebrews says, into the presence of God with my head hung low. But we're called and we're welcome to look at Jesus, to look at God in the face. You remember, of course, that in the tabernacle and in the temple, 
there was a big curtain, you know, like a thick curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the, of the temple, right? And, you know, the high priest was the only one who could go in the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement, but then only after he had offered all these elaborate sacrifices for his own sin. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, they also, he would bathe a number of times publicly behind a linen screen, but it was, it was to make, so all Israel knew that the one representing them would be clean. But do you know what was embroidered on that curtain? Embroidered on that curtain were palm trees and a sword. Because Israel understood that what was signified by the Holy of Holies was the Garden of Eden. The presence of God. And, and to get back into the Garden of Eden, what needs to happen? To get back to the palm trees, right? The picture of, of the garden. What needs to happen is that somebody needs to go under the sword. And what, what God is teaching us in the sacrificial system is that that's what's needed and that's what's going to be provided. Though the blood of bulls and goats, the book of Hebrews tells us, could not accomplish what was needed, it pointed us to the fact that God was going to provide what was needed. And so when you get to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is actually a really important book for understanding worship. And the main point that the book of Hebrews makes about worship is that worship means that we get access, that we can come boldly before the throne, that we should have confidence because of what Jesus did. To think that you, know, that you have to earn God's smile by your own passion or by your own you know, single-mindedness or by your own efforts is always to live in doubt and insecurity. The only thing that brings you confidence is to know that Jesus lived and died in my place because you know what God already thinks about what Jesus did. Right? God said for everybody to hear, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And if you're in Christ, he is well pleased with you. He welcomes you with open arms. I love this little phrase in the book of Hebrews where it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Though, of course, in and of ourselves, he should be very ashamed to call us his brethren. But he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. He's not ashamed to welcome us into his family because of what he's done in the gospel. So the gospel brings humility. I don't deserve this. But it also brings boldness. Jesus has opened up a new and living way for me. Right? By, by you know, sacrificing himself in the true heavenly um, tabernacle. So the book of Hebrews is saying that when Moses constructed the tabernacle, he was operating from a picture. God had allowed him to see the true heavenly tabernacle. And he told him to, to, you know, God told Moses to construct the tabernacle based on what he'd seen. But the, the earthly tabernacle was never the place, was never the real thing. It was always a picture. It was always a shadow. What Jesus came and did was offered himself in the true heavenly tabernacle. And by doing that, he opened a new and a living way. There no longer is a curtain. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain split from the top to the bottom to make it very clear that God was the one who would open the way. It wouldn't be something that we would do ourselves or be able to do, okay? So worship is made acceptable through Christ. Because of this, we get freedom and access. Because of this, we should have great joy. We should, you know, I'm speaking to the Presbyterians among us now, we should mourn the fact that we don't just flip out 
about the gospel. Like Jesus, or like um, Jesus, like Brian said, and Jesus said through Brian last night, if your heart doesn't resonate with what he said, it's because God has not given you ears to hear. I think there's a lot of people who feel that they're worshiping well, but there's no emotional engagement. And there can be various reasons for that. Some of it may be, you know, that we're content with our temperaments. Listen, you should never be content with just your temperament and defaulting to, well, I'm just not an emotional person. If the gospel is true, it should transform your emotions. Well, I'm not somebody who really, you know, thinks very much about theology. If the gospel is true, if all scripture is profitable, then you really should care about everything that God has said, right? And so worship should always be, you know, a place where we say, gosh, I need to engage more. My heart needs to be engaged more. My head needs to be engaged more. My will needs to be engaged more. All of that should happen. So worship, true biblical worship, should be marked by passion, rich experience, um, love for Jesus, understanding. The, the way of biblical worship is not just to, to sort of make a direct appeal to your will or to make a direct appeal to your emotions or a direct appeal to your head, but to, to, to look at all of those things together. Okay. Um, second point, I guess, before we get into Second Samuel, is that worship is response to God's revelation. This is a really important point. We don't wump up worship. I remember um, one time, it was right when I was out of seminary, I think I showed up at a, at a church service, and somebody said, hey, why don't you do the opening prayer? And I, I remember thinking, uh, I just don't like, feel in a worshipful mood. You know, how am I going to do the opening prayer? And I kind of thought about that, and I realized, well, I need to, I need to read some of the scripture, even to myself, um, because I need to be reminded again about the promise of the gospel. In other words, the way the worship service, the traditional liturgy is set up, is the first thing we do is what? A call to worship, where we read words from God saying, come and worship me. I deserve it. It's what you are made for. Do it. But as soon as we do that, what's the next thing that happens in the traditional liturgy? Is what's called the invocation. The invocation is a prayer where we say, okay, Lord, you've told us to worship you. We can't unless you send your spirit. Help. This is the pattern of biblical worship. God says, worship me. He says it through his word. He says it through creation. And then the first thing we say back to him is, we can't. Help. And then we begin to, you know, sort of enter into all the worship service. I like to think about the worship service the same way I think about preaching a sermon that there should be a structure to the service that brings out the basic logic of the gospel, a basic gospel presentation, that in the worship service we see a re-presentation of the gospel because the gospel, Christ crucified for sinners, is what Christians and non-Christians need to hear. A lot of people sort of make this false dichotomy between worship that edifies Christians and worship that reaches out to unbelievers. There's a lot of debate about that. A lot of what's called seeker-sensitive worship that says we need to kind of water things down for unbelievers. And then other people that say, no, worship is about edifying the body. And therefore, we shouldn't, we shouldn't you know, translate our 17th century language or um, music at all. You know, that, you know, we need to do the, the very best for God's glory, right? In, in some ways, that, that debate really misses the point that worship edifies and reaches unbelievers because true worship puts Christ crucified at the center of everything 
and Christ crucified is what both Christians and non-Christians need. We don't need to choose between edifying or reaching out to seekers. We should, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, be sure that what is going on in our worship service is understandable to outsiders. Now, you know, it's interesting, in the time of the Reformation, this is one of the passages that people like Luther and Calvin used to say this is why we shouldn't have the Mass in Latin. Nobody speaks Latin anymore. And 1 Corinthians 14 says we shouldn't do things in a tongue unless there's an interpretation. In our own day, of course, that passage is, you know, pressed into service more for the debate between some Reformed people and Charismatic people, that we shouldn't have tongues, you know, going on um, unless there's an interpreter. But I'll tell you, you know, I remember growing up in a Presbyterian church where sometimes we would sing solos, you know, in Latin. And I remember, that doesn't make any sense. What's the point of singing a solo in church if nobody understands what it's saying? So we should translate that or maybe think about, you know, doing things that are understandable to people. 1 Corinthians 14 lays that down as an important principle, that worship should be understandable. That doesn't mean that it needs to be, you know, watered down to a first or second grade reading level. I don't think, actually, that everything that happens in a worship service needs to be instantly understandable. I don't think that, you know, good worship means that we don't have to wrestle with stuff a little bit. And the reason I say that is because the Bible and the Psalms are, are things that we need to wrestle with sometimes. Okay? Um, so I, I think there's a balance there between understanding that we should work to explain, or I like this phrase, that we should exegete the worship service. Exegete means to sort of unpack or bring out or to unfold, explain what we're doing and why. So you'll see that in a lot of church plants, I'm part of a church plant now, where we do this pretty explicitly, understanding there's a lot of non-church people there. So we'll say, here we're doing the call to worship. This is what a call to worship is. This is why we do it. I don't know how many of you, even, even that little point I made about the call to worship and the invocation, how many of you have ever even heard that? We've been to your church your whole life. So what I find is here we're exegeting the worship service because of unchurched people, but in reality, most of the church people have no idea why we do what we do, right? So it's, it's really helpful um, to, to do that, to be able to talk about, you know, uh, like for instance, I, I find sometimes we will spend a lot of time and effort picking songs and prayers and corporate readings and scripture passages to fit the theme of what the preaching will be about in a particular service. But yet, we, sometimes we never tell people until the sermon comes what the service is about. Like, we just think people are going to kind of get it. Um, I, I think, you know, don't be afraid of doing that kind of stuff, explaining people, helping them understand why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, I think it's a good idea to do. Um, so, uh, worship is dialogical. We want to hear from God and we respond back to him. I'll just kind of throw in this, no extra charge. I think this is really helpful for you to begin to understand this principle when it comes to reading and studying the Bible on your own. You think about your own quiet times. Um, and I would recommend a book that's over in, in the um, book table over there called Eat This Book by Eugene Peterson. How many of you guys saw that over there? A couple of you. It's, I know it's a strange title. It's based on um, language from the book of Jeremiah, where God tells Jeremiah to eat the scroll, to take the words into him, ingest them, may it be part of you know, his being, may it nourish him. Um, what that book is about is about kind of the ancient Christian practice called spiritual reading, which is something that for a lot of people we don't know how to do, but it's, it's basically combining scripture reading and prayer. 
in a way where you have a dialogue with God through prayer and through the scripture. So, you know, for instance, to, you know, let, let me just look at this little example here in First Peter, the passage we just read. Um, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Read that and then and to say in the posture of prayer, Lord, I'm not sure what that really means. I haven't thought of myself as a living stone. What does it mean to be a living stone? Um, help me to understand that. Or, gosh, I don't think anybody could describe me as a stone. Uh, I can't say that I'm really letting myself be built into your temple. I'm kind of sort of a lone ranger out there popping in from church to church. You know, as a friend of mine says, you know, are you, are you, you know, married to the church or are you just sleeping with her? You know, I, uh, I, need, to, you know, I need to repent, Lord, help me. Here you've laid out for me what you've made me to, about. You've created me to be part of a living stone. I, I imagine living stones are visible. I'm not sure if my Christian testimony is very visible. Anyway, you use all that stuff. Instead of just sort of sitting down and saying, hmm, what should I pray about this morning? Or even instead of just saying, well, here's my prayer list. I'm going to pray through all these things. No, you, you actually begin by going through Scripture and turning it into a dialogue with God where you read a verse and you say, Lord, uh, help me with this. Help me understand it. Help me do this. Help me live this. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you that you're committed to making me a living stone. That you don't just say here, hey, you need to be a living stone. Get your act together. Thank you, Lord. Let me worship. You know, here I see a picture of what the gospel is all about, that you come and you make us into something that we're not for your own glory. Let me just sit in that for a little bit. Lord, how could I doubt you today if I'm getting ready to go live my day? I need to remember this, that you're making me into something that I was not. Therefore, I should be greatly encouraged. Anyway, do you see what I'm saying? You know, you're turning the Bible reading into prayer. It's this dialogical principle. Instead of sort of prayer just being a one-way conversation where you're just talking to God, talking to God, or Bible reading being a one-way conversation where he's just talking to you, talking to you. It's a back and forth. And Eugene Peterson describes this in great detail in that book, Eat This Book. It's all about this practice. It's all about the difference between... He says, you know, it's really hard for us because we've been taught to read um, in a way through the modern educational system that is so far from the way you should read the Bible. We don't read things to develop a relationship with the author. We read things so that we can gather information to spit it back out on a test. And when you approach the Bible that way, you really miss the point and you fail to develop relationship with God through his word. What I've found a lot with my students is a lot of them have come from churches and backgrounds where all of the emphasis in the Christian life was upon their will. It started out with, you know, you need to make a decision, and then the whole Christian life was about you need to do this, and you need to do that, you need to have quiet times, you need to do this and that, right? And then they come to understand Reformed theology a little bit, and they realize, whoa, it's not all about my will, it's about God's will, and about God's grace, and about God's love that sets me free, and all this kind of stuff. But what often happens with my students is where they used to be basically trying to live on their own willpower, now they're trying to live on their new understanding. And for a while, when they first become to understand grace, it's really exciting, and it seems to give them sort of this energy boost. But after a while, if they're just feeding on being right, they get more hard and bitter and mean-spirited. What they often have never learned to do is to feed on Christ by faith in the scriptures and in the sacraments and in prayer. And so what I'm saying is this is really important stuff. Um, if you don't want to spring for the $25 version, 
um, that eat this book. Also, there's another little book over there about a little pamphlet on Martin Luther um, about how to pray. Basically, his barber asked him one time how to pray, and he came back with like a 30 or 40 page, you know, document. But it's really helpful. He'll talk about, he talks about the same sort of thing. This is basically what they do in the monasteries um, as well. It's, there's a long history to this sort of thing, and I commend it to you because I find a lot of Christians today don't really understand anything about meditation and don't know how to bring prayer and scripture reading together. Um, so I also, I think I have a, a little lecture about this on a, our website at belmont.ruf.org. And if you want to hear Tim Keller give four lectures on this topic that are really, really wonderful, go to Redeemer dot com and there's a four tape series on um, meditation adoration contemplation and I forget the other one but it's a four tape series uh, on these various aspects of prayer where he draws from you know some of the, the Catholic writers but also from some of the Puritans who really understood this stuff like I say it's something we don't understand much today and it's really important thoughts on that those two points about worship being made acceptable through Christ and worship as dialogue. Comments, questions? Nothing? I'm just so utterly clear that there's no questions whatsoever. You know, more likely that I have the second seminar hour to contend with and information glut is setting in by this morning, right? So let's look at a picture. 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Such a rich, suggestive picture of the gospel. And I think it ties together a couple of the themes that we've been talking about. Um, rather than just being sort of coming from my head, I wanted to sort of go to a scripture passage that doesn't just sort of say it to us, but pictures it for us. Um, I think that, you know, I know that God understands that we need more than just words. That's why he gives us the sacraments. One of the things that Reformed people like Calvin have um, understood is that God condescends in giving the sacraments. He gives them to people with weak faith. Sacraments are for people with weak faith. It's good news. Calvin has a great little paper called A Short Treatise on the Lord's Supper where he talks about this. Um, he says that the sacraments are basically God you know, saying in a picture what he's trying to say to you through the word, um, that the words aren't enough. Calvin actually went so far as to say you shouldn't have the preaching of the word unless you have the sacraments. And you shouldn't have the sacraments unless you have the preaching of the word because they, both, they mutually interpret each other. And, it's, you know, you see this all, all the time. You know, the Bible says things like taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, or, you know, Jesus, you know, describes um, the kingdom that way as, as something that you can taste when he um, talks about, you know, eating my flesh and drinking my blood. The Bible uses sensory language to help us understand God. We don't like that sometimes. C.S. Lewis has this place where he says, which is more true, to say God is omnipotent or to say God is a rock. This is in his little book, um, I think it's Reflections on the Psalms. He says, we think that God is omnipotent is more precise or more true because it's 
sort of the pseudo-scientific language. It seems theological. But which term does God use to describe himself? He describes himself as a rock. Now, I'm not opposed to the word omnipotent. I'm not opposed to theological words that aren't in the Bible. But I want you to understand that God uses richly suggestive word pictures all over the place in the Bible. And so uh, I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a reason that the Bible is not just a systematic theology proof text book. 2 Samuel, chapter 9. Um, okay, you know, David is anointed as the king, but Saul is still sitting on the throne. And Saul is a pretty nasty guy. You know, he takes to doing things like, you know, has David play his heart for him, and then he'll throw spears at him and try and kill him. Um, eventually, you know, chases him out of Dodge and pursues him, tries to kill him. Eventually, the Philistines kill Saul and his son, Jonathan, and David is able to come to the throne. Now, the first thing that happens when Jonathan and Saul are killed is that all hell breaks loose in the palace. Because in, in those days, in the, in the ancient world, when one dynasty ended, you know, what would happen when a king was killed is that often the new guy who was going to come in would put to death all of that previous king's family so that there would be no future rivals to the throne. It was basically the way you consolidated your grip on power, okay? So when word gets back to the palace that Jonathan and Saul have been killed, everybody's scurrying around trying to get out of Dodge as quick as they can. One of the things that happens is that Jonathan's son, okay, Saul is the king, Jonathan is his son, so he's the crown prince, and then Jonathan's son, a guy named Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, is there. He's a baby. His nurse, in all the confusion in the bedlam, picks him up, and as she's rushing out of the palace, drops him, and he's crippled for life. She picks him up, she carries him off, but he's crippled for life, okay? So that, you need to understand that as we get into this story in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. David asks, this is as, as, after he's now settled in the palace, David asks, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul, any of his descendants, to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Remember, David and Jonathan were dear friends and had pledged their love and their commitment to one another. So as soon as David gets in and the throne, he says, is there anybody left of Saul's family that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Now, sorry, this is actually years later after David's been, been settled. You need to understand that. Years after David's been settled, he goes, they find, oh, there's, a, there's a, this guy, he's living off somewhere. Let's go get him and ask him. So they bring Ziba in, and they ask Ziba, you know, is, is, is there anybody? Um, is there anyone, verse 3, still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness, David asked. Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, 
your servant? He replied, don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem became, because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. <coughs> now let me unpack this picture for you a little bit, because this is, this is an amazing picture. We see here a picture of who gets saved, and I think we see a picture of what the gospel is, of what salvation is, and we see the privileges that salvation brings. Look at this a little bit. First, you need to understand who Mephibosheth is, because he really functions as a picture of all of those who God would call into his kingdom by his grace. Mephibosheth's name means a shameful thing. That's the guy's name. A shameful thing. And three times he's identified not as Jonathan's son, but how? As being from the household of Saul. Very specifically, he's never really described as Jonathan's son. He's not described as David's dear friend's son. He's described as from the house of Saul. He is from the enemy's household. He is a shameful thing who is a descendant of the enemy of God and his anointed king. He's from the family of the guy who tried to murder David. And he's a potential rival to the throne who should have been killed, as far as the custom went, because whenever a new king took over, usually the family of the previous king were all killed. So he's been, he's been hiding. So he's ashamed, his name means a shameful thing, and he's from the house of the enemy of God and his anointed king. He's also a cripple. I, don't, I know that's not a politically correct word, but it's the word the Bible uses. It doesn't sort of mince me, but you need to understand we're all cripples, of course. We're all helpless. We're lame in more than just both feet, but this man is lame in both feet. And he's crippled because he had to flee in terror when Saul and Jonathan were killed. And that's back in 2 Samuel chapter 4. He's a victim of the sin of his grandfather. The fleeing, the fall, the permanent disability, the end of his future as the royal heir, and his hope to be king one day. All of this happened to him while he was still too young to have anything to do with it. You ever, you ever wonder why we're guilty for Adam's sin? I do. But let me tell you, Saul, you know, Mephibosheth here is a picture of that. Somebody who is an enemy of God's anointed king, not simply because of his choice. If you're one of those people that think the only reason you're out of favor with God is because of your choice, you haven't read your Bible enough. God sends one to represent you, Adam 
who makes himself an enemy against God. And in so doing, all of those who come after him are his enemies. But listen, if you don't like that, because you don't like the idea that somebody can represent you, what are you going to do with the gospel? The heart of the gospel is that Christ comes and represents you in his life and his death. The idea of substitution is central, both to understanding your sin and to understanding your hope. And Mephibosheth is a picture of that. He's an enemy. But I think not only is he an enemy because of what happened to him, I think that what's happened to him and where his situation is has probably been making him more and more bitter towards, towards David. I mean, imagine, he's living in a place he is brought from where? Lodabar. Lodabar means place of no pasture, place of no rest. The Bible often describes the wicked as, as having no rest. Again, it's picturesque language to say this is a guy who not only has been crippled and has been lamed by things that have happened to him. The sin, sin has affected us. It's tragic. Everybody in this room is a victim as well as being a sinner. You need to understand that. You have been sinned against, but you've also sinned grievously, right? So it is with Mephibosheth. This is a guy whose whole life he's heard the stories about how he would be king if it wasn't for this guy, David. Eugene Peterson, the guy who wrote the message, says this. He's a fugitive who had fled when David became king, and he's been in hiding ever since. He was the only living heir of the once great house of Saul, but nobody knew it. His life would have been in danger if that information was revealed. The end of his future as the royal heir, all of this happened to him. Well, sorry, I got on the wrong line. Because his life would have been in danger if that information was revealed, he grew up with his royal identity suppressed. Grew up with his royal identity suppressed. Grew up with all the privileges of royalty denied him. And both conditions were aggravated, made worse, by his lameness. Guys, that is such a picture of who we are outside of Christ. Uh, you know, great, great pictures of this in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? The sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are royal persons. We are all royal persons because we are the descendants of King Adam and Queen Eve. Yet our royal identity is suppressed. Francis Schaeffer says that mankind is a glorious ruin. A glorious ruin. Our royal identity is suppressed, but yet it's still there. All the privileges of royalty are denied us. We're fallen kings and queens. He lives in Lodabar, like I said, the place of no pasture. Jerusalem is the place where God's people live with his anointed king, but Mephibosheth is not welcome there. He lives in Lodabar, in hiding. He's most likely very bitter toward David. I know that's a bit of a speculation, but I don't think it's too far-fetched. He's a crippled man with royal blood in his veins. And so are you. How Mephibosheth must have felt about David. This guy is the reason I'm crippled and I'm not the king. He's probably heard stories about David his whole life and hated him. And now he stands helpless before the king. Stands helpless before the man his grandfather tried so ruthlessly to murder. 
But what does he get? What does he get? He gets mercy. He gets kindness. And understand, it is David's initiation. Just as the Lord initiates in our salvation. Did David send a message? A.W. Pink says this. Did David send a message of welcome inviting him to come to Jerusalem? Did he notify Mephibosheth that if he did his part, that mercy would be accorded to him? Did he forward the cripple a pair of crutches and bid him make use of them? And hobble to Jerusalem as best he could? No, indeed. King David had him brought from Lodabar. Brothers and sisters, praise God for bringing grace. That God is the one who pursues us and brings us to himself. Mephibosheth is living in Lodabar, which means a place of no rest. What a picture. David has him brought. He can't walk to him. And he loves him. I have a friend of mine, Andy Asenga, who has this song. I don't know if you guys, any of you guys heard his music? Um, you should check him out on, on MySpace and, and find this song of his. Um, uh, you know, I can't even remember the name of it, but I, the chorus line is, Jesus, 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 is how it starts. And he has, um, Jesus, you'll have to come get me because it's too far to walk tonight. It's a song about sort of being deeply convicted of his sin. But I love it because it's not, okay, Jesus, you know, the gig's up, I'm exposed, I'll come back. No, it's, I've been exposed as utterly bankrupt. Jesus, you'll have to come get me because it's too far to walk tonight. Mephibosheth can't walk, but it's no barrier. It's no barrier to the king showing him kindness. God takes the initiative because of his love for another, just as David shows kindness to Mephibosheth, not because Mephibosheth deserves it. Not because Mephibosheth is beautiful. Not because Mephibosheth will make a winning member of God's team. He shows kindness to Mephibosheth because of the covenant that he's made with another person. And that's true of you and me. The reason that God shows kindness to us because of the covenant that God the Father made with God the Son, where God the Father and God the Son agreed that the obedience and the death of Jesus would be counted to those who didn't deserve it. We're shown kindness, not because of what we did. Therefore, have confidence that there's nothing you can do to change God's mind. The reason God has welcomed you into his family, has welcomed you to eat at his table like a royal son and a royal daughter for the rest of eternity is because of the commitment he's made to his son. That's why we have confidence. That's why we have joy. God takes the initiative because of his love for another. Mephibosheth is love for something done before he was even born. Does that ring a bell? David and Jonathan made a commitment to one another and to their families to love their families before they had families. Just like you know, Paul says in Romans 9, that before the twins were born or they could do anything good or bad, God said that he would love Jacob, right? The grace of God is not based on anything you do or anything you don't do. I love this. A.W. Pink says, The one who here obtained kindness at the hands of the king received favor not because of anything he had done nor because of any personal worthiness he possessed, but wholly on account of a covenant promise which had been made before he was born. 
so it is with those toward whom God now acts in free and sovereign God and, and grace. I guess the other, the other part of this picture I'd bring out for you is that God's love is a love for his helpless enemies. The gospel is the great surprise ending. The mercy of the king for helpless traitors. This word translated kindness in the NIV in verse 1 and in verse 7 is the important Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is covenant faithfulness. David is asking, is there anybody left of Saul's family that I can love in a hesed way? That I can love in a covenant faithful way? For Jonathan's sake, he's saying, in effect, is there anybody left in the enemy camp that I can love? I want to show love to my enemies. Find me one. He goes out of his way to say, where's an enemy that I can show covenant love toward? Do you think that God does that for you? Do you think that God goes out of his way because he longs to show covenant love to his enemies? Do you really understand that if you're a Christian, it's because God pursued you and he didn't have to? I mean, you know, all the great hymn writers understand this. That's why there's so many questions in our hymns. And can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? See, if, if that ever becomes routine to you, well, of course God would die for me. Who wouldn't? <laughs> if that ever becomes routine to you, forget it. It's no wonder your, your, your worship will never be filled with reverence or awe or joy if that becomes routine to you. Uh, or I love, um, oh, love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me. The judge of all hath suffered death to set his prisoner free. See, at one level, the gospel doesn't really make sense. In, in what weird universe do judges die to set their prisoners free? And you might think, that sounds crazy. No, that's real. That's reality. It's, again, why worship is about practice in seeing through common sense, because common sense is wrong. You say, you know, like Paul says this in Romans 5, very rarely will anybody die for another person, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it takes getting used to that idea, doesn't it? It doesn't make any sense. It's not what we experience at any level in our life. It's why God has to not only tell us over and over again, but he gives us these kind of pictures to capture our imagination. Because the love of God is greater than all you can ask or imagine. Finally, just briefly, a couple points on the picture of the privileges that the gospel brings. He gets peace. I love that the first thing, the first thing that happens well, actually, I've got these points reversed. The first thing he gets is he's called by name. Mephibosheth is standing there with his head down, expecting to hear, take him away, off with his head. Instead, the first thing he hears is his name, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Fear not. The first thing that David says to him, calls him by name, and he deals with his fear. That's what God does for us in the gospel. He calls us by name, and he deals with our fear. You know, um, in Colossians chapter 2, it says that when Jesus suffered on the cross, 
when it seemed like he was being triumphed over, in, effect, in actuality, he was triumphing over his enemies because all that stood opposed to us, the law that stood opposed to us, he took it, he nailed it to the cross, stripped the powers and the principalities of their power by taking the law that stood opposed to us and nailing it to the cross. In effect, saying, like Luther, what, what power does Satan have over us to accuse us? Your answer should never be, Satan, come on, I, I really mean well. I try hard. Don't argue with Satan that way. Say, Satan, again, you don't know the half of it. I'm so much worse than you think. But go take it up with Jesus. Because he nailed the law that stood opposed to me, nailed it to the cross. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 2, it says that God disarmed the devil by stripping him, by stripping him of the power that he has over us, which is the fear of death. How? Because Jesus had done away with death. His death is put to death. Death. And therefore, he's put an end to the fear that Satan has over us, the fear of death, right? The gospel deals with our fear. Jesus says, don't fear those that can kill the body. Fear the one who can destroy your body and also your soul in hell. Now you say, okay, that doesn't seem to deal with fear. Here's the point. The fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. And that's what you get in the gospel. The fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. It's this reverent awe. Uh, it actually says in the Psalms, because with you there is forgiveness of sins, therefore I fear you. So you know, when the Bible is talking about the fear of God, it's not saying be afraid of him. Because the fear of God is something that should come from knowing that your sins have been forgiven. It's this overwhelming awe and humble reverence where you realize God is not to be trifled with, but he can be counted on. Again, to, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, this wonderful picture. Is Aslan a tame lion? Is he safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. I so hate that they screwed that up in the movie. Put it in a different place. He gets peace, he gets called by name, he gets a place at the table. This is a picture. You want a picture of the gospel to carry around with you today? The king's enemies are made to sit and eat at his table for all eternity. And in the Bible, eating is always about rich fellowship. In, in the Bible culture, people sit down and enjoy a meal. They don't, just, they don't have fast food. It, it's completely contrary to their understanding of what meals are about. It's not just utilitarian. Eating is about fellowshipping, enjoying rich relationship. And that's what he gets at the table. And you see this again in, in Revelation, right? God is still making this picture. Open the door. I'll come in, I'll sit down, and I'll sup with you. We'll enjoy a meal together. He's given the inheritance this family had lost through their sin. What does it mean to be a co-heir with Christ? Christ will inherit all things, and so will you. Not because you deserved it or earned it. But because of Jesus, we get the inheritance that our father and mother lost. But we actually get even more than that. 
Um, Isaac Watts says it so well in, in one of his hymns that in the gospel we get more blessings than we lost in Adam. If, if Adam had never sinned, we would have had the righteousness of a man. But now we have the righteousness of God. We would have no concept of the mercy of God. Sure, we would be without sin and we would be glorified, but we wouldn't understand the mercy of God. We wouldn't forever celebrate the Lamb who was slain. In the gospel, we get more blessings than we're lost in the fall. Something to think about. And he's made like a royal son. He's made like a royal son. I'll tell you one more point as we close here. He's humbled. Look over in 2 Samuel chapter 19. There's one other little place that Mephibosheth shows up. You may um, remember this, that David is not a perfect guy by any means. Even though in this story, 2 Samuel 9, he pictures wonderfully for us what God is like. There are times when the king is a wonderful picture of what our true heavenly king is like, just like there are times when fathers and mothers give us a good picture. Um, they still fall short, but it's a pretty good picture. But there are also times when the king is a really bad picture of what God is like. And David is that at times, too. One of the things that happens is his son Absalom revolts against him and actually pursues David and is trying to kill him. But eventually Absalom himself is killed. Okay? So Absalom, you know, kicks David out of the, temp out of the palace. He has to go on the run again. Um, but then when Absalom is killed, David is able to return to the palace. And when he returns to the palace, he finds that there's some people there who never left. Now, a lot of people fled with David and were going around and hiding with him. You know, this is where the Bible talks about David's mighty men who were loyal to him when he was being pursued by Absalom. But there were also people like Mephibosheth and Ziba who stayed at the palace. And so now that David comes back to the palace, the question is, were they traitors to David? Why didn't they follow David as well? And so here's, that's the story here in um, chapter 19. And look at verse, uh, pick it up at verse 24. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, see again, he's being described as the, son, the grandson of the enemy. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. This is right as David's coming to the palace again. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord, the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he had slandered your servant to my lord, the king. So Ziba said, Hey, Mephibosheth, he was a traitor to you, David. He's already said that earlier. And, and Mephibosheth said, no, it's not true. He's slandering me. He betrayed me. I, wasn't, I wanted to go, but I wasn't able to. My Lord, so he said, and he has slandered your servant, verse 27, to my Lord the King. My Lord the King is like an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my Lord the King. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. See, he still can't get over that. I deserve death, but you let me eat at your table. So, what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why say more? 
I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him, Ziba, take everything, now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. Who do you believe? Ziba or Mephibosheth? I believe Mephibosheth because he has all the signs of mourning. He's not taking care of himself. He's not washed his clothes. He's not trimmed his mustache. And when the, when the push comes to shove, he cares more about the glory of the king than he does about his own well-being. He says, I could care less about the inheritance that I deserve. If you don't want to give it to somebody else, go ahead. See, those who understand what it means to be welcomed to eat at the king's table, those who know what it means to have the inheritance that our first father and mother squandered, given back to us, don't need to hold on to the things of this life very, very tightly. You know, there's, the Bible gives lots of signs about whether our worship is actually having an effect. Is your worship making you more free? Is it increasing your confidence in God's goodness? and what he's promised to you, so that you don't have to get all of life from this life. One of the Puritans said it, sort of quaintly, but I, I kind of like it. He said, he who rides to be crowned thinks little of a rainy day along the way. Remember that, you know, you know, if you're on your way to your coronation, you can put up with a little rain. Is that what you understand your future to be? You know? If you don't understand that, you know, worship should again be about healing. It should be about celebrating where we've been, what God has done. It should be about celebrating what's going on now, how he's pledged himself to us even now, and it should be about the future that he's promised to us. That's why when we, Paul says when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember what he's done whenever we celebrate until the Lord comes again. You see that? In the sacrament, past, present, and future are all brought together, and they're all reinterpreted. Worship should always be about reinterpreting reality for us, both the past, the present, and the future. And Paul makes that real explicit with the sacraments, but I would argue that that's always to be what's going on whenever the word is read, whenever the word is preached, whenever we're singing, whether we're singing songs to God or whether we're singing songs of mutual edification, and there's biblical basis for both of those, by the way. Um, it should be about having our sanity restored with regard to our past, present, and our future. Well, go in peace, and uh, we'll pick this up tomorrow with um, talking about why do we sing hymns in RUF and what can we learn about worship.